Good evening. A long time ago, they sent me off to Bible school. Uh, there's a few others of us here who have been on this journey. And uh, every single morning uh, during the week, we had to gather before lectures started, and we would have to go to chapel. And uh, we would be initiated, dragged into, kicking and screaming, uh, the way of worshipping that was all about the Anglican Church and the C of E. Um, hooray! Um, because some of us went to a Bible school to train to be vicars, not actually knowing very much about the Church of England, having been kind of brought up in a um, you know, within the Church of England, but in the sort of the informal end of it and the kind of charismatic end of it. So I had to go to chapel every single uh, morning uh, during the week. And honestly, I loathed it. I mean, I'll just tell you how it is. Um, um, Steve, can you turn me down a little bit because I'm going to get louder as I go through and then that gives me some headroom. Thank you so much. Um, uh, I, 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 I loathed going to chapel with a passion. I mean, to the point where actually I felt that going and being in this kind of worship environment was kind of killing me. But, but I, I had to kind of keep on going and I had to try and be disciplined about it. And one of the, one of the pressures was, was this, you see, I, I was used to worshipping like this, and this type of worship, what I grew to love it in a way, was, was not like this, it was like this. I was like, I've not really done that before. Uh, and and that, was, that was just weird, doing that all the time. That was the only thing that was on the menu. And so, I, I, you know, I had to learn to be in it and to discover God in it, and he is, he is gracious, and he is patient. And I made this resolution about, I don't know, a year, halfway through, something like that, that I was going to ignore everyone around me, and that I was going to worship how God had called me to worship. And if that meant that I was the only one in the whole chapel going, Come on, Lord, welcome to Monday, from the days that I actually make it, made it, if I'm being honest, um, then, then that's what I was going to do. A little while later, when I was at New Wine, a few, um, I don't know, year, two years later, I just felt God say, you know, whatever circumstances you find, you're in, find yourself in, and, you know, being a vicar, I found myself in some odd ones. Worship anyway. Whether you like what's on the menu or whether you don't like what's on the menu. Whether the worship leader is good or whether the liturgy is a little bit too longer than you're used to. Worship anyway. And I made that choice about 20 plus years ago that that's what I was going to do. And you know the wonderful releasing thing about having made that choice is that I've discovered that God is in all those things. Even though before I couldn't really see him. I want to talk to you from a passage in uh, 2 Samuel, but I'm going to make a lot of reference to a chunk in uh, 1 Samuel. And uh, you do need to know whenever, whenever uh, you give a talk and it's 
and it's been inspired by someone else, it's the right thing to do to give credit to where you first heard it. So the first place I heard this passage preached on was this guy called Jack Hayford. And his was the church which was Church on the Way, which is part of the nod of the hat to where our church vision comes from, a church on the way. And I heard him preach this passage. A friend of ours, some of you who are older will remember this. We got this massive kind of plastic cantilever thing with 24 cassettes in it, all on the subject of worship. And this was one of them. And we worked our way through them. I think we've still got it in, in, in the attic somewhere. They were wonderful richness. But this was one of the ones that just has stuck with me. And I, and I want to unpack it a little bit for you. And I hope that it will do for you what it did for me, which is to make you hungrier for the presence of God and more attentive to him. So if you've got a church Bible, can you, uh, can you turn to page 262? And um, we're going to start there, because we've got to, in order to understand the stuff in, in 2 Samuel, we've got to, we've got to start back a bit uh, in 1 Samuel. And um, it goes uh, like this. Uh, So we're in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Um, if you're struggling to find it, it's like that far through. Excellent. Good. It's in the old bit. Okay. Uh, before Jesus has come to earth, but Jesus is still around. Amazingly. Because uh, God has always been three. So it goes like this. You see, in the Old Testament, the J- Jerusalem is not yet the center of worship, there's this place called Shiloh, and uh, Eli is the priest, and he's got two sons, and uh, his two sons are scoundrels, according to the passage. I like that. They're scoundrels, and they have no regard for the Lord. And uh, Samuel is put into this environment. To learn and to grow. His mum dedicates him. And Samuel hears God's voice. That's 1 Samuel chapter 3. And the Lord at the end of that chapter appears to Samuel. He keeps on showing up. He keeps on speaking. And the word of the Lord comes to the whole of Israel through Samuel. But then stuff starts to get a little bit kind of odd. Um, because there's all this odd stuff that starts to happen with the ark. But the context is that Samuel's in place, Eli is the priest, and his two boys, scoundrels. They're they're messing the whole thing up. Um, So as we come to talk about the ark and the ark of the covenant, Meg mentioned this a few weeks ago, and she put up the picture of the temple. And I don't know whether you remember, but right at this side, uh, there was this picture of um, there was this picture of the temple courts, and then right over here in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. So this is the, this is the thing that represents God, the presence of God, the agreement between God and people, His covenant. It contains the Ten Commandments. Actually, it doesn't just t- contain the Ten Commandments, it contains... Two copies of the Ten Commandments, one for God and one for the people. 
It also contains a jar of manna and some other things. And on top of the ark is this mercy seat, the lid of the ark. It's a really, really significant thing. But as the Israelites go to war with the Philistines, they get defeated. Steve, can you turn me down a bit again? Because I'm, I'm, I know that I'm going to get excited. Um, it sounds, if you come and sit a bit further forward, because I'm booming here. Is that all right? Thanks. Because um, this is such great stuff, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm really excited for it. Um, so the ark, they, they get, first of all, they get defeated, and then they think, well, what should we do? Let's take the ark of the covenant into battle with us, and then everything will be okay. And the Philistines are absolutely terrified at the thought of the ark being taken into battle, and they're petrified. But actually, the Philistines win the day, and they capture the ark of the covenant. And... Um, So the Israelites are then really worried. If you want to read about that, go and read uh, in Exodus where Moses is having this conversation with God. And he says, if you will not go with us, then what what will identify us? How will we be different from anyone else on earth? And so if they lose the ark, if they lose the presence of God, then what's, what's going to make them different from anybody else? So the Philistines capture the ark and they uh, take it to this place called Ashdod. Um, by the way, um, it, it's really not good when the ark is captured because basically, um, and there's a lot of this in this passage, uh, uh, you know, and there's not a lot of smiting that goes on nowadays, okay? But in this particular set of passages, there seems to be an awful lot of smiting, okay? Uh, I'm not going to explain that, it, it just is. Um, yeah, we'll leave that. Uh, Ken's going to explain that next week. Um, so, so, so basically, when the, when the ark gets taken, uh, everybody gets smited, okay? Everybody gets wiped out. All the priests get wiped, but there's one really significant person. She is uh, so shocked by what has happened, so shocked that she's pregnant and she goes into labor and she dies in childbirth, but just before she dies, she names her child, She says, my child will be called Ichabod. And Ichabod means the glory has departed. It means God has gone. He's left the building. He's left the people. If you don't go with us, if you don't go with us, what will distinguish us from everybody else? Anyway, it gets worse. There's a lot more smiting. Um, So the Philistines take the ark to Ashdod and they place it in their temple. This is a brilliant, brilliant passage. You need to go and uh, read this. Um, uh, This is 1 Samuel chapter 5. Uh, They place the ark in their temple uh, for the god Dagon. And uh, overnight they place the ark next to their god Dagon. And then they come back in the morning and they find that Dagon has been knocked over and has fallen prostrate in front of the ark of the covenant. They're like, hmm, bit weird, bit disturbing. So they prop Dagon back up. I mean, frankly, if your God needs propping up, okay, get a new one. Just, just a thought. They should have picked. Anyway, they come in the next morning, and not only has Dagon fallen prostrate in front of the Ark of the Covenant again, but he's lost his head and his hands. It's all over for Dagon. 
But worse than that, the people in the whole area get sick and get struck with tumors. So they're like, well, we thought this ark thing was going to be a good idea, but now we want to get rid of the ark. So they move the ark to a place called Gath. Doesn't go well. Everyone gets sick again. So they move the ark to a place called Ekron. And the same thing happens. And after seven months, the Philistines had had the Ark of the Covenant. They decide, we've got a good plan. What we're going to do is we're going to send the Ark back to the Israelites. That seems like the best plan of action. So they made some uh, gold offerings as a kind of guilt offering to send back with the cart. They make a wooden cart and they put the Ark of the Covenant onto the wooden cart. And they hitch it up with two cows and then they send the Ark off to go wherever the cows will take it. Well, that's great for the Philistines because it means problem solved. God is hopefully going to stop smiting them. But the ark lands in this place called Beth Shemesh. And it's a weird little incident in in the next chapter because uh, this is chapter Um, 6. The ark arrives being pulled by these two cows. Uh, It just says they they were harvesting in the fields and so they stopped. The Ark of the Covenant's come back. Maybe God's presence is returning. Maybe his glory is returning. And so they cut up the cart and they sacrifice the cows as an offering to the Lord. But also, they looked inside the Ark of the Covenant. And 70 of them end up dying. Again, Ken will explain this all next week. And so the people of Beth Shemesh ask, who can stand in the presence of the Lord? 1 Samuel 6 verse 20. And so the ark is taken from there to Abinadab's house. And Eliezer, his son, is consecrated to guard the ark. And it remains in that place for 20 years. In the intervening years, All sorts of stuff happens. Quick summary of the whole of the rest of 1 Samuel. The first bit that you need to know is that the people, the Israelites, ask for a king so that they can be like everybody else. They ask for a king so they can be like everyone else. And and eventually, God kind of... Uh, goes, okay, you can, have a kind of, you can have a king, but you do need to know that he's going to enslave you. You do need to know that he'll make you work. And so Saul is anointed as king. And then Saul goes off track, and while Saul is still king, Samuel anoints David as king. You might remember the story of, of the, uh, Samuel uh, going and, and calling the people out, and, uh, and this kind of, haven't you got any more sons? And, and there's one more, and he's in the fields. David gets anointed as king while Saul is still king. And Samuel grieves for Saul, even while he's still alive. He grieves as if he is dead. Fast forward, page 296, okay? We've dived into the passage for the day. Uh, Page 296, um, David is now king. There's a whole load of fighting that has happened in between. His mighty men have been hiding out in caves. There's a whole load of interesting uh, passages in there, which um, I will take great delight in preaching for you for one day. Um, But uh, that is a story for another day. Um, David's king. 
And slowly more and more of the kingdoms around him are coming under his authority and his leadership. He's winning over the land. He's becoming stronger. And so it becomes time to bring the ark back. Or rather, not bring it back to where it was before, but bring it now to the seat of David's authority, to the city of David, to Jerusalem. And so they head to Abinadab's house, where the ark has been hiding out for 20 years. And they make a new cart to transport the ark. They celebrate with all their might, it says. And Abinadab's two sons are guiding the ark, one on each each side. And the oxen stumble. And Abinadab's son, Uzziah, reaches out his hand to steady the ark and drops down dead. This is is uncomfortable. We, we, we We don't like this stuff. He gets struck down dead in a moment. And David, understandably, is angry. 2 Samuel 6. Then David was angry because, of the Lord, because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzziah. Verse 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day. I said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So the ark doesn't come to the city of David. It doesn't come to Jerusalem. Instead, it goes to the house of Obed-Edom. And it remains there for three months. And it simply says that the Lord blessed Obed-Edom. Because the ark of the Lord was there, Obed-Edom was blessed. And David eventually hears about this. And so they make another attempt. They make another attempt to bring the ark of the covenant back to, or rather to Jerusalem for the first time. But this time it's different. This time, there's no cart. It's a small detail. There's no cart. You see, God was never supposed to be put on a cart and carried around like we owned him. The Ark of the Covenant had these uh, eye holes on each side. And there were poles that went through. And the priests had to literally carry the Ark of the Covenant on the poles on their shoulders. It was really intimate and slow. And this time, they do it right. You see, the first time David was just doing what he'd heard had happened. How, how, did, the cart get, how did the Ark of the Covenant get here? Oh, it came on a cart. That's what the Philistines did. Oh, well, well, well let's, let's, let's make it a good cart. Good. This time he's done his research. They carry the Ark of the Covenant. And every six steps, they stop and they sacrifice a bull and a fatted calf. Now, someone's going to go and need to do the research and correct, and correct this if I've got my maths wrong. All right. But I, I did a little, bit of, a little bit of random Bible Googling. Okay. Uh, I might have got this wrong, but it seems like... The place where the ark was to the city of David was probably over 10K. So over 10 kilometers. 
or for the runners amongst you, uh, just over six miles. I looked back at my last six-mile run, which I did nice and slowly to make the pace, just the cadence a bit shorter. Some of you are picking up now. Uh, I took 8,607 steps. That means, I mean, let's just take that as the number. That it's 8,607 steps from where the art was to where it wanted to be. That means there were 1,434 sacrifices by the roadside where they'd stopped every six steps and worshipped. Another sacrifice. The roadside is littered with sacrifice, and all the time David is dancing before the Lord with all his might. He has taken off his kingly robes and he's put on this linen ephod. And as they come into the city of David, his wife looks at him and despises him. And then as they come into the city, there is a massive celebration. How do we know there is a massive celebration? Because everyone got bread and cake with dates in it and cake with raisins. Apparently this is Eccles cake. I don't know. Apparently they got Eccles cake or something like that. I don't know. Uh, Everyone got cake. So it must have been a party. Everyone. And then there's this little interaction right at the end. David returns to his household to bless them. His heart, having taken six steps and worshipped, six steps and worshipped, six steps and worshipped, all the way to the city of David, is to help the people have a party and then come home and bless his household. Whereupon he is attacked by his wife. She doesn't like the fact that he has been dancing half naked in view of the slave girls like any commoner would dance. This was not fitting for a king. See, his wife is Saul's daughter. But David flips it around. I will celebrate. I will be even more undignified than this. I will be held in honor even by the slave girls. And then 2 Samuel verses, uh, 2 Samuel chapters 7 and following. Then there is rest. For a moment, the wars stop. God's promise comes to David from the fields where you looked after sheep to the place where I will establish your household. And David's prayer where he commits himself to the Lord again. What can we draw out of this odd story which has got so much in it that is uncomfortable? that is difficult for us to hear. 
Let me draw out a couple of things, some of which are inspired by that first sermon I heard, and some I've added as just other things that I've seen. So the first one is this. As we worship, are you worshipping on your terms, or are you worshipping on the Lord's terms? And by that, please, please, please do not mishear me. I do not mean by that that the terms are Joe Tompkinson on a guitar with some drums and a PA. That is not what I mean. I'm talking about the surrender of your heart. The surrender of your thinking. The surrender of your living to the King of Kings. Whether you choose to worship with a band playing or in silent prayer or up on the hills or wherever it might be. This is about you. Are you coming to God and are you, are you hanging on to things? Are you keeping hold of things and saying, well, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll worship you over here with this, with this bit of my life. But, but I, I, I'm not going to worship you at work. I'm not going to allow you to be part of my relationships. Because, frankly, I'm enjoying that. I want to come to church on a Sunday and, and sing the songs or, or go through the liturgy if it's earlier in the day. But, but that bit's mine. Are you, are you worshipping on your terms or his terms? If it's your terms, God will honor you. He will honor you because he loves you and he will let you go and do the things that you want to do. Because he loves you. Or you can come and surrender to him. Give your all to him. Let it all go. In whatever the outward expression of worship is. And in this in this evening uh, encounter service, you know, we're pressing into a particular expression of worship. But there are all sorts of others. And the important bit is your heart. Are you, are you worshiping on your terms or his terms? The second thing is this. Are you worshiping for your audience or for an audience of one? Are you worshipping and, and you're super aware of, of everyone else around you? And, you know, if it's this kind of service, you know, well, I'm not, I'm not going to put my hands up because uh, Mark hasn't done it yet or whatever. You know, who cares what I've done? Okay, if you need to lie on the floor and pray, lie on the floor and pray. If you need to worship with your hands in the air, Worship with your hands in the air. If Joe makes a suggestion that we all put our hands in the air, but you want to put your hands like this, because that's how you're... Then do that. Who, who's the audience? You know, if, if any of us ever make those kind of suggestions from the front, it, it's because we want to help you step into something. It's not a command. Who's your audience? Are you super conscious of the people around you? Or are you... Wanting to be more and more conscious of him. But it's not just true for here. 
It's true for when we're at work. When the worship becomes, will you, will you do that thing with integrity? Will you speak up? Will you stand up for injustice? Will you contend for what's right as a way of worshipping? Or will you just follow along with everyone else? See, if the audience is for one, for him, it makes the decisions a whole lot easier. Next one, are you worshipping for your benefit or for his this is, a, this is a hard one for us to hear because in our culture, everything is centered around my benefit. I am the center of my little world and you're the center of your little world. And the whole of all of the, all of the Facebook ads that you see, everything is streamed to your set of likes based on the cookies stored in your browser so that you can have the most amazing day with the most fantastic teeth. But it doesn't work like that. You know, as we come to worship, you know, there is huge benefit in worshiping. As we worship Him, as we come to Him, we receive fullness of life. But you know, we're not doing it for our benefit. We're doing it because He's King. We're doing it because He's worthy of worship. One day, every knee will bow Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why don't we just start now? <laughs> Whose terms? What's the audience? What's the benefit? Or is it all for the Lord? And the last thing, the last thing and the point of the talk is how far will you travel before you worship? How far will you go? How far can you go? How far do you go? You know, do you, do you scoot off in the morning having had a quick pray, go and do your day of work, get completely exhausted and arrive home thinking in the, thinking in the evening, oh, I'm just, I'm completely worn out. Lord, help me. And he's like, I, where, where were you at lunchtime? It's like, I wanted to help at lunchtime. I wanted to help at 11s's. I don't know whether we do 11s's anymore. But if you do 11s's, he wants to help you at 11s's. He wants to help you at five, five past nine when you've finished your first cup of coffee and you're thinking, oh my word, what does a day hold? He wants to be alongside you when, when you're exhausted from the kids or when you're fed up of being alone. He invites you into this life of prayer and worship that is without ceasing. And he promises to be with you always, whatever the circumstances. So you see, I think six steps is a good measure. I, I, was, I was on retreat this week with um, the guys that I was at college with and there's a few less of us now, so we go away for the, for the same amount of time, but there's a little bit more space. So we went for a walk. We walked to the pub. We didn't go to the pub. But we went, I'm not going to pretend like we didn't have a beer. We went out for a curry in the evening. We had a beer. It was lovely. Uh, but this was the afternoon. Didn't quite seem right to go on retreat and head straight to the pub. <laughs> so we walked near the pub. 
And as we're walking through this field, there's a cross on the hill and there's a church in the distance. Andrew pipes up and he says, how slowly do you think Jesus walked? We're like, oh, oh yeah. Slower than me. <laughs> How slowly do you think Jesus walks? How far do you get through your day before you acknowledge him? Let me just flag up a, a couple of other things. See, Psalm 23 says this, that he will prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Now, some of you might think, well, you know, I, 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 can't, I can't do this whole worship Thanksgiving thing when life's tough. You know, what he's got for you is in the presence of the things that are tough and that are not working. He has got a banquet for you. So if he's got a banquet for you, you better start giving him thanks. What about this one? What about Philippians chapter 4? Because, you know, as, as we prayed this evening, it, it seems like there's, there's some things to address around anxiety. Let me just address them really quickly. Uh, Ephesians, uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 says this, so it's easy to remember. Rejoice in the Lord always. When are you supposed to rejoice? Always. You're not supposed to just be a fair-weather rejoicer. You're not supposed to be just rejoicing. When there's things to rejoice about, you're supposed to be rejoicing. And when's he, how much of the time is he going to be with you? And how often are you supposed to pray? Yeah. Well, I was thinking without ceasing, but always is much better. But the great thing about this is it goes on to say, do not be anxious. Why? Because we're anxious. Because we get stressed out. We get fearful. And when we're anxious, it says that we're not to do that, but instead we're to pray. And we're to do so with thanksgiving and with praise. And we're to present our request to God. And then the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard our heart, our emotions, and our mind. You know, if any of you have ever been with someone or, or gone through this yourself, where you've gone to talk to someone about anxiety, a, a professional, one of the things that they might say to you is, when you get anxious, what happens to your hands? And they get you to observe your, your hands. You know, you, you're getting clammy. And then they might say something like, well, at the point that you're feeling anxious, just spread your toes out on the floor. Why would you do that? You know, the really interesting thing about the brain is it's really difficult to do two things at once. I mean, we're simple, folks. I know, I know Bill Gates told us that we can multitask, but the reality is we can't. So if you're anxious, all right, and you suddenly start going, right, I'm going to do an ordinary thing. I'm going to squiggle my toes on the floor. You, you, you see, Philippians 4 is... is wonderful cognitive behavioral therapy, or rather, should I say, Christian behavioral therapy. It's brilliant. Because it says, don't do this because we know you are. Instead, here's something different to do, and you're to do it with thanksgiving. And if you do it, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind. 
I, last thing, it would be great to have the band back up because we're going to dive into worship, I think. Unless Alice has got a different plan, I don't know. We'll see what happens. Um, how, how might you do this? I want to be really practical, okay? Because this is not just about, you know, coming together for an hour and a bit on a Sunday in whatever expression of worship you, you come and gather with other people. And by the way, it is really important to gather with others. You know, if you're a, if you're a coal trying to burn by yourself, you'll quickly go out. You need to gather in some way, whether it's quiet or whether it's noisy, whether it's reading words from a page or songs from a screen. It doesn't matter. But it's not about those times. Actually, all of this is practice, if you like, as we encounter the presence of God here so that we can meet him out there in our homes. Uh, a friend of mine um, in a previous church said to me, uh, but Mark, Mark uh, look, I, I, I've heard you talk about this kind of stuff, and I've heard you talk about worship all the time and pray without ceasing. He said, he said but I do finances. He said, I, I talk to people, I, I advise people about their money. And I, you know, how on earth am I supposed to discover, uh, discover God in all of that, and how am I, how am I to worship all day? Um, I didn't, I didn't say the next bit out loud, um, but at that time, we were having an all-you-can-eat Chinese, um, and he was, we, we, were, we were built in different ways, let's put it like that, okay? So I said to him, um, I said, here's a thought for you, okay? Why don't you, when you go to work, rather than buy snacks, why don't you buy some grapes? Because you, I mean, you like eating. And I said, why don't you leave the grapes on the edge of your desk? And then whenever you're talking to people on the phone or whatever it might be, you'll constantly, through the day, you'll reach for a grape. And every time you eat a grape, why don't you lift your eyes to heaven? Every single time you do that and you reach, why don't you lift your eyes to heaven? Why don't you just take a moment and worship him, acknowledge him. Even if you're on the phone having another conversation with someone, you still do it in your head. And some of us need to build that kind of stuff into our days, to our living. But, you know, let's, let's dive in now. And, uh, you know, practice is not even the right word because practice suggests that, he's, that it's just about out there. He's here as well. And he wants to meet with all of us in the noise and in the quietness. So should we stand? And we're going to worship. And just as we come into this, maybe cast your imagination over what the week lies ahead. What's the one thing that you could do this week so that you bump into him more? Maybe it's setting a reminder on your phone for once an hour. Maybe it's buying a bowl of grapes. Maybe it's putting some post-it notes around the house. Maybe it's taking some intentional time to worship. Maybe it's walking through Western, just going, Lord, bless the high street. Come and bless the hospital. Bless my street.
See where he leads you. Will you see how slowly you can walk this week? See how few the steps can be before you worship so you don't get too far ahead. Lord, as we worship now, come and come and rest upon us. Come and fill us. Come and transform our thinking and our living. Lord, that our whole lives will be turned over to you on your terms, for you as the audience, for your benefit. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.